Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 100, I Have the Power, a special celebration for the 100th episode of The History of Chemistry on Lithium Batteries. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of this podcast may download a supplemental sheet with diagrams of many topics I mention in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. For the 100th episode, I thought we should talk some about that aspect of chemical electric power that runs our laptops, tablets, and mobile telephones, the lithium battery, and what makes it different from other standard batteries. So, let's start with lithium itself. It is not an element or metal known to the ancients, and its existence was first hinted at around 1800, when Brazilian polymath, but mostly a natural philosopher interested in minerals, José Bonifacio de Andralda e Silva, found an unusual mineral, petalite, on the Swedish island Utu, near but due south of Stockholm. The name petalite comes from Greek petalon, meaning leaf, because the mineral cleaves in nice, flat segments. Seventeen years later, a chemist, Johann August Arf Vedson, was working with petalite in our old friend Berzelius's laboratories and discovered the metal lithium, a metal with similar compounds to potassium and sodium. Berzelius himself named the new metal lithium, from Greek lithos, or stone. The modern formula for petalite mineral is now known to be LiAlSi4O10. Lithium is atomic number 3, after hydrogen 1 and helium 2. This means it has only 3 electrons per atom, but this was only discovered in the early 20th century. The first two electrons complete the 1s shell, and the last electron is the only one in the 2s shell. Therefore, it really likes to give that outer electron away, becoming a plus-one charged cation, hence its metallic properties. Among other important properties is that it is the lightest solid element at typical conditions at only half a gram per cubic centimeter. Also, it happens to give away its outer electron so freely that it's highly reactive to water. You have to store the metal in oil, or in an inert gas, or under vacuum. Lithium is not particularly common, though it's widely distributed, but only at low concentrations, somewhere between 20 and 50 milligrams per average kilogram of earth material. You can get some in certain briny waters and mineral springs, because, like similar elements, its ionic salts are found in water. As a fledgling chemist, you might say, great, let's build a battery with it. It's lightweight, 
and likes to transfer electrons to a nonmetal. But the problem is that it's so reactive and not so common that chemists shied away from it for years in favor of lead acid batteries, zinc carbon batteries, zinc manganese batteries, and newer formulations like nickel cadmium, colloquially called NICAD batteries, and such. Perhaps the first real attempt to build a battery using lithium metal was by the ultra famous Gilbert Lewis, whom we encountered from his Lewis dot structures, four electrons around atoms, and Lewis acid base theory. He and his student, Frederick Keyes, began research on using lithium as the anode in a battery in 1912. They published their work in the Journal of American Chemical Society in 1913. Unfortunately, their work didn't lead, for some reason, to a practical battery, and the idea vanished from the electrochemical world for half a century. Lithium slowly began to re enter the electrochemical world's consciousness starting in 1958. In that year, William Harris published his doctoral dissertation, Electrochemical Studies in Cyclic Esters. The research was designed to look at non aqueous solvents, such as these organic liquids, for metallic salts, including aluminum, niobium, and iron chlorides. Included in his research was lithium as well as lithium perchlorate. What he found was that an intermediate layer between the salt and electrolyte formed so that no direct and potentially violent reaction would occur. This kind of intermediate layer is called a passivation layer. But he also found that the passivation layer can still conduct ions through itself. Which means that maybe some kind of practical lithium battery could be built. By 1967, Raymond Jasinski published a book called High Energy Batteries, including discussions of lithium. Yet the mere idea of lithium as a viable metal for actual batteries remained outside the mainstream electrochemist's vocabulary. My copy of John Bacris and Amulia Reddy's Two volume compendium, Modern Electrochemistry, published in 1970, doesn't even have the word lithium in the index. Still, lithium began to enter the commercial battery world quietly. A patent from Livingston Electronic Corporation, filed in 1964 and granted in 1969, was for a 3 volt lithium battery with sulfur dioxide. Matsushita Electric Company sold a lithium polycarbon monofluoride battery by 1973, and Sanyo did the same in 1975 with a lithium manganese oxide battery, especially for the new cool LCD solar powered rechargeable calculators. Starting in 1972, a lithium iodine polyvinyl pyridine PVP, battery. Has been incorporated into pacemakers in the medical world. But to be clear, these aren't the lithium batteries that exploded, if I may use the word, 
onto the scene in the 1990s. For that, we need to take a slight detour. In the early 1970s, research into the idea of reversibly adding and removing molecules, atoms, and ions into crystals began to grow. This idea of inserting and removing such particles regularly and reliably is called an intercalation reaction. To do this, you need crystalline materials, for these have clearly and regularly defined spaces for insertion. And you need actual empty spaces available. These spaces might be random empty spots in the lattice, or they might be grooves or channels or even empty layers between parts of the crystal. For electrochemical research, you also need electrical and ionic conduction. Intercalation is ultimately a coinage based on Latin. The original meaning was to insert a day into a calendar, which happened because 12 lunar months doesn't match a solar year. After Julius Caesar's calendar reform, the only intercalation was adding February 29th every fourth year. That even wasn't enough, and the Julian calendar was so out of whack in a millennium and a half that Pope Gregory intercalated extra days occasionally, which we still do in the secular system. But the meaning for chemistry is now inserting particles into a crystalline system reversibly, so that the particles go in, you change some condition in the material, and the particles can leave. Early work in 1972 on intercalation compounds was by English-American chemist Stanley Whittingham on the iron-cyanide-bronzes, some metal plus iron plus the cyanide group CN, which are essentially like the first modern artificial dye, Prussian blue. That year, a NATO conference held in Italy had as its focus energy storage devices. Brian Steele at the conference talked about using disulfides of transition metals, those metals in the middle of the periodic table, as electrodes in intercalation devices. A couple of research groups also examined disulfides using tantalum, niobium, and titanium as electrodes. So, Whittingham left a postdoctoral position at Stanford University and started a new job at Exxon in September 1972. Soon thereafter, he took some ideas he was researching at Stanford, namely his intercalation research. He chose titanium disulfide for his new battery's cathode, lithium for the anode, and by December had a working battery. Instead of about 1.3 volts the battery generated, this one could reach 2.4 volts and was rechargeable. Exxon's corporate managers decided by January 1973 to continue to put money into the project. And then the world oil crisis hit in October, in which the oil-rich OPEC nations embargoed the USA because of America's support for Israel. Exxon's interest in Whittingham's new lithium battery rose further. In the mid-1970s, he patented in Belgium and the USA this battery. 
This was the first modern rechargeable lithium battery. One almost immediate practical result was the Ibouches SA Perpetual Solar Wristwatch from Switzerland containing a button-sized lithium battery. But the oil crisis vanished within a couple of years. Exxon's interest in Whittingham's lithium battery faded. The company sold off the technology, and it was finally commercialized in the mid to late 1980s under several forms, a coin cell from the Everetti Battery Company for keeping CMOS computer memories active as a backup battery, Grace Company selling a AA format battery with a rating of 1 amp hour, and a C-sized battery with a rating of 1.6 amp hours. Molly Energy Limited in Canada commercialized a lithium battery with a molybdenum disulfide electrode whose trade name was Molicel. AT&T also brought to market a lithium battery with a niobium selenide electrode in AA size in 1989. By the 1990s, a lithium with vanadium oxide electrode battery was also sold. But none of these products really was a game-changer for everyday life. The next part of our story involves an American scientist at the University of Oxford named John Goodenough. Rather than using lithium metal, Goodenough tried lithium cobalt oxide for the electrode, which gave even more voltage than Whittingham's version, up to 4 volts, and it was still rechargeable. Goodenough got in touch with American and European battery firms, who all declined to have interest. Oxford University even rejected paying for a patent. Goodenough had to patent his invention through a Harwell British government laboratory and signed away all rights to it under the title Electrochemical Cell with Fast Ion Conductors. And still, no one cared. Goodenough was at mandatory retirement age in Britain, so he was forced out of Oxford but was able to get another professorship at the University of Texas, and so he returned to the USA. Then, in the mid-1980s, Sony Corporation in Japan called up the Harwell Government Laboratory, asking to get licensing from some old patent. The Harwell scientists were confused and couldn't imagine what old patent Sony meant, till they carefully examined documents and discovered it was Goodenough's patent. Sony engineers wanted a small, lightweight battery for a new product under development, a camcorder they called the Handycam. It took a new tiny cassette format videotape called Video 8, launched in 1984, and was designed not to sit on one's shoulder, but merely be held in one's hand. Clearly a higher voltage, lighter rechargeable battery was better, and Goodenough's lithium battery fit the bill. But there is yet another part to the story. In the early 1970s, Japanese researcher Akira Yoshino 
became an employee at Asahi Kasei Corporation as a member of their exploratory research team. His initial projects went nowhere. But Yoshino heard of this weird new electrically conductive polymer, polyacetylene, found in 1977 by Hideki Shirakawa, Alan McDiarmid, and Alan Heeger. We've already explored this topic. So Yoshino began looking at practical uses for polyacetylene. Right at this time, in the late 1970s, the electronics industry in Japan was growing rapidly. Existing batteries like zinc carbon or alkaline batteries, while they worked, could not last too long with high power audio amplifiers like the stereotypical boom boxes we think of circa 1980. Lighter weight batteries and rechargeable ones would be really useful. There was a lot of research at the time into looking for better anodes, but some of the proposals were rather unstable and could even be unsafe. Yoshino's research focused on trying out polyacetylene as a new battery anode. What's more, Yoshino found, starting in 1981, that lithium ions could travel into and out of polyacetylene like an intercalation reaction. After a couple of years, Yoshino had taken Goodenough's lithium cobalt oxide cathode and added the polyacetylene anode and created a working rechargeable battery. The resulting prototype was a third lighter than the existing rechargeable NICAD batteries, but he couldn't get the battery any smaller. Unfortunately, this wasn't good enough because a lot smaller. Was a lot better for electronics. The cause here was that polyacetylene was lightweight but too bulky when made into a working battery anode, making the battery still physically too large. What could Yoshino do? He began to search for some compound that acted chemically like polyacetylene but had a higher density. A carbon compound would be ideal. Especially if it had alternating single and double bonds like that of polyacetylene. Yoshino couldn't find anything like this. Then he hit on a new material from another group in his company, Asahi Kasei. They had just found something carbon called vapor phase grown carbon fiber, and this material worked. Another name for this is a type of petroleum coke, which is layers of carbon atoms. Petroleum coke is the carbon containing crud you get after refining oil. One needs such coke to have low sulfur and contaminating metals content, now called anode grade. Just like polyacetylene, the petroleum coke allows intercalation of lithium ions. Yoshino filed for patent protection of this new battery in 1985. Which brings us back to Goodenough's patent at Harwell and Sony wanting licensing rights. They also wanted licensing rights to use Yoshino's battery and eventually received such rights. The lithium ion battery as we know it today was first sold in the Sony Handycam in 1991. From there, it graduated to use in the new laptop personal computers and the new communications device. We call the cell phone or mobile phone 
through the 1990s. Well, now we have a lightweight, powerful, rechargeable battery. What really big use can we put it to? Nissan Corporation took the first plunge here. The company modified a couple hundred Renessa minivans for electric power using neodymium magnet electric motors at 62 kilowatts and added lithium-ion batteries, calling the new model the Ultra EV, and produced them from 1998 to 2002. These minivans were primarily used by electric utilities. Their range was about 230 kilometers, with a charging time of five hours. The batteries could be recharged about a thousand times. To now, I have talked really about lithium-based cathodes in batteries, but researchers also considered lithium as the other pole in batteries, the anode. There was some early study of lithium metal added to graphite anodes in the 1950s, but it was poorly understood until a report in 1965 of synthesizing a lithium carbon alloy, LIC6. It took another 11 years till 1976 before proper intercalation of lithium into graphite was reported by Germans Jürgen Bessenhard and Günther Eichinger. A couple of years later, using an electrolyte made of a polymer, Michel Armand reported that graphite with intercalated ions really did work as an anode. In the late 1970s, Armand also advanced the idea of making a lithium-ion battery with one intercalated compound in the anode and another one in the cathode. Then, in use, the ions would move toward one pole and then the other, depending on whether it was charging up or discharging and doing work. This kind of battery came to be called a rocking chair battery because the ions go in one direction, then the other. The idea came out just as good enough at Oxford invented his lithium-cobalt oxide battery, but like Goodenough's version, there was significant delay in commercialization. Sony Corporation started fabrication of these batteries in 1985 and Sanyo in 1988. This is why we didn't hear much in the wider world about lithium batteries till the 1990s. That idea bears out in John Bakris and Shahed Khan's later book, Surface Electrochemistry, published in 1993, which finally mentions lithium batteries. In over a thousand pages, lithium batteries rate less than two pages, but they are discussed briefly. By the mid-1990s also, there was another compound used for a lithium battery anode. This was a spinel material, Li4Ti5O12. Spinel is a term that geologists would know, but less so for chemists. I had to look this up myself. The word comes from Italian, or maybe Latin, from spina, thorn, because such minerals often have spiky, pointy crystals. Ultimately, it seems to be a kind of mineral with two metallic elements plus oxygen, 
often in the formula Ab2O4 and containing magnesium and aluminum as the metallic elements. Spinels in inorganic chemistry have tetrahedral, that is, four groups, coordinated to a central ion, and octahedral, that is, eight groups, coordinated to a central ion. There is a whole lot more on spinels in chemistry, dealing with how the electrons are paired up or unpaired, and their resulting magnetism, but we'll skip it here. For our battery purposes, the spinel we mean, for our battery purposes, the spinel we mean here has two metallic elements, lithium and titanium, plus oxygen. This spinel anode is used for ultra-high power batteries. If you use this spinel in a sodium-based rather than lithium-based battery, you get some extra cycling abilities. There is a third part of a battery that I've merely mentioned so far, and that is the electrolyte, the material that allows ions to move back and forth from one pole to the other inside the battery. We generally think of liquids as the electrolyte, such as aqueous sulfuric acid in a lead-acid battery in a car. Another electrolyte can be a wet paste, which you might find in a typical alkaline battery. A paste obviously doesn't drip acid, so it's safer for general home use. You want something that transfers your chosen ions easily and safely, so there was also research in lithium batteries for an appropriate, lightweight, effective electrolyte. Michel Armand was strongly into such electrolyte research in the early 1980s, focusing on polymers, particularly polyethylene oxide with lithium salts. Unfortunately, Armand's polymers don't have a good conductivity of ions at normal temperatures. Therefore, those solid-state lithium batteries in certain vehicles need to be heated up to get the proper ionic conductivity. Which brings us back to liquid electrolytes, which brings us back to liquid electrolytes like in lead acid batteries, which do have excellent ionic conductivity. So, for many electric vehicles, lithium batteries do use liquid electrolytes, such as in Sony Corporation's lithium cobalt oxide battery with a liquid lithium phosphorus hexafluoride immersed in a one-to-one mixture of polypropylene and diethyl carbonates. The problem here is that lithium metal doesn't work well with these polymers, so lithium batteries return to the rocking chair ionic shuttling batteries I mentioned earlier using graphite anodes. They aren't optimal for the highest energy densities, but they do far better at standard temperatures without being heated. Such a graphite anode plus liquid electrolyte, that is a solution of lithium arsenic hexafluoride in an organic liquid, dioxalane, which is a five-member ring of three carbon atoms with two oxygen atoms, was found to work by Samar Basu in a patent from 1981 for Bell Laboratories. Typical commercial lithium batteries with graphite anodes currently incorporate lithium phosphorus hexafluoride in carbonate solvents.
Let's discuss what's going on in these fabulous lithium-ion batteries. Both poles, the anode and the cathode, have lithium. There is the electrolyte, which is the medium through which the lithium ions move. And finally, there is a separator, a membrane, to keep the electrons from suddenly moving from one pole to another and shorting everything out, but allows the lithium ions to move as needed. To charge the battery, the lithium ions are forced, by the movement of electrons, to leave the cathode intercalated material, the lithium metal oxide, and go through the electrolyte and separator into the intercalation material of the anode, the layered arrays of carbon atoms. To use the battery to run electrical items, that is, discharge the battery, the connection allows the lithium ions to go back through the electrolyte and separator to the cathode. There are problems that can occur with lithium-ion batteries. The major one is called thermal runaway, when the battery heats up during use. From chemical kinetics, we know that as the reactants heat up, the reaction goes faster. So this thermal runaway can make the lithium battery reactions go faster in a vicious cycle until you might get a fire. A fire can destroy the separator inside the battery, which short-circuits it and heats it even more. Spraying water on the burning battery will cool it, but not stop the reactions. You can also imagine that an automobile collision can damage a lithium-ion battery and cause internal leaks and hence fires. Overcharging or complete discharging is also bad and possibly dangerous. Either one removes all lithium ions from one or other electrode of the battery, which can cause that electrode to disintegrate. There is even another problem. Lithium has a tendency, for some unknown reason, to grow whiskers from the lithium electrode to the positive pole. These whiskers, technically called dendrites, may be only several hundred nanometers in diameter, but they grow through the electrolyte and can puncture the separator, shorting out the battery simultaneously. How and why these whiskers form, and how to mitigate them, are all aspects of active research today. So now we come to the end of this episode about the lithium-ion battery, which really changed the face, size, and weight of personal electronics in the 1990s and beyond. In some later episode, I may talk about the environmental aspects of constructing and disposal or recycling these batteries. In our next episode, we look at more forms of carbon, shaped like tiny tubes and discovered in the 1980s and 90s. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.